From Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Isaiah Hernandez. This is Film Club. A podcast series where our youth film critics and cultural connoisseurs spill the theoretical tea on a new movie. The film Quantum Cowboys tells the story of two hapless drifters in search of an elusive musician. They traverse the American West as well as space and time. As the story shifts through different timelines, the movie utilizes a mix of live action and multiple styles of animation. Its cast includes Lily Gladstone, Kiowa Gordon, David Arquette, and Gary Farmer. It was co-written and directed by our guest on today's episode of Film Club, Jeff Marsley. This isn't Jeff's first rodeo with At Me. He moderated the Q&A for our youth film screening after school special at the 2022 Anchorage International Film Festival, where he was also screening Quantum Cowboys. At Me producer Kendrick Whiteman met with Jeff over Zoom to talk about Quantum Cowboys, the difficulties in distributing an independent film in today's market, and his love for coming up to Alaska for the Anchorage International Film Festival. And don't worry, if you haven't seen the movie yet, they don't get into spoilers. Before we get into their conversation, let's hear a clip from Quantum Cowboys. Some things, if you think about it, it repeats the same. And sometimes there's a shift. That's why I come back to the idea that it was my left. Now it's my right. I'm gonna lose a goddamn foot the next time. You ever notice how it's like a loop? You see all the circles around us all the time? I'm starting to notice circles everywhere now that I think about it. It's like we're in this cup, right? Like, this is me, yeah. right? This is you. Already. Right? See how we moved? Yeah. You sank and I floated. No, I think that's me, actually. But my point is... What's your point? There's you? mo- there's movement. Circular. So, do I come back up? Do you sink first? Do I sink last? Does it come back around? I guess to start off, um, can you tell us about your experience at the Anchorage Film Festival? You had three different uh, projects there, if I'm not wrong. I think I even had fourth one a long time ago, maybe in 2010. I'm not 100% sure, but I think maybe Mars played there, you know, a little over a decade ago. But in recent years, um, I believe I played Everything Changes, and then I played Phantom 52, and then played uh, Quantum Cowboys there, and have managed to come out a couple times for the event. And uh, it's it's really great. I mean, I was lucky enough to get to help pick last year's uh, 50 cool film festivals they are 25 coolest film festivals that they did uh in movie maker magazine and i i included uh anchorage in large part because i think it's great programming and i think it is a great time so just right off the bat you know it's a festival that obviously thinks really hard about the films they program i think they uh done a really cohesive job of 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 making films that have overlaps and a really cool event and not just necessarily picking from whatever the three or four films that play Sundance and some of the majors and a lot of these other regional festivals just play those as well, which I mean, I guess serves some purpose because you bring those films to communities, but I think you're basically then cheerleading films that are doing fine and playing in these other places, which 
doesn't mean it's not a thing to do. But I love that Anchorage seems like it really looks at everything that comes in and then picks what they feel like is best for them. So, so one, I just like supporting an event that I think is still uh, out there advocating for the kinds of films that um, I think people need to see, but sometimes have trouble finding their audiences because they're not getting out there. So I applaud that. But on top of it, you know, you get to go to Anchorage in the wintertime, you know, when there's the Northern Lights. And last year there was... I might be quoting this wrong, but I think the news was saying it was the most snow they've had in a December since like 1951. It was crazy. It was like this insane snowstorm was there. And the, you know, rental car gave me a Chevy Malibu, which as the uh, implies is the wrong car for Alaska. You know, nobody drives a Malibu in Alaska for a reason, but it was, it's frozen over, you know, and the sun's coming up at 1030 in the morning and, I say coming up, it kind of sort of comes up and then goes back down. And uh, it's it's a great adventure, too. So I think there's something extra special, special about meeting with other filmmakers and watching these movies when you go to a place that still is, um, you know, kind of exotic and fun and a little bit scary and certainly out of everyone's normal experience and comfort zone. So I think, I guess it's my way of saying I, I've had a really good experience at the film festival, both because I love the programming, but I also love the adventure of the film festival. Yeah, no, I remember uh, last year you were uh, you hosted the Q&A segment for the after school special. Yep. Which I was a part of. And I believe that's how we uh, met last year. Yeah, it was. We were there, and which was great. And that's that's, again, one of those things, too, that's that's super cool is, you know, all the people putting on the festival actually make some effort to integrate the filmmakers into the local community, which I was, you know, when they were like, do you want to, you know, come be on this jury and do this, uh, you know, host this Q&A? I was like, of course I do. It was fantastic. Moving along, can you tell us, um, could you set up a bit uh, for the audience about your film, Quantum Cowboys? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, I was a physicist before I was a filmmaker, so it certainly explores some ideas that, uh, you know, I was already thinking about when I when I made, you know, when I made all my films. But um, there's been so much recent filmmaking that's the, what everyone calls the multiverse, I guess, these days. Um comes out of uh, earlier theory called the many worlds theory, which I think my film is more akin to, but there was a side of me that said as much as I love what they're doing with star Wars or uh, not star Wars, Spider-Man, probably star Wars is doing too. Now I just don't know for sure, but all these, you know, Dr. Strange, um, everything ever all at once, these movies that kind of allow you many, all these different universes. So you can ignore any of the rules. It's a great fun story telling uh, tool, but it's not really, what the science talked about and the science of the multiverse and many worlds is really a lot about what observation does to reality and you know what reality really means um, and there are conflicting realities but they do in fact when coming into contact with each other actually extinguish other realities so we do get some sort of of, of real timeline and I think it's a harder concept to grasp than just saying there are no rules. And part of what I really wanted to do was find a way to make that cinematic. And so I worked hard on this film to say, I don't want to show you 10 Lily Gladstones or 10 Kiowa Gordons, but I want to show you one history of those characters, but change the whole format of the film. So instead of saying you're looking at 10 Lilies, I wanted to pick the audience up and move them around. So you watch the same Lily from 10 different perspectives. And I don't know if I succeeded or not, but that was kind of the kernel of the challenge of this film. And I co-wrote it with my friend, Hal Gelb. And, uh, you know, another part of this film was, you know, what does it mean 
what does it mean to be that observer? And in some cases, that's a science, but in other cases, that's art, that's history, that's how we observe things and record them. So really tried to make that an element of this film that came from my own experience as a filmmaker and his experience as a musician. So we threw all that at the wall with this crazy story and then say, okay, well, I also want people to to sit all the way through this film. So let's try to make it fun. So I hope that it succeeds on one of these levels for most people, whether they they can just say like, I don't know, this is weird and I'm laughing and I'm enjoying it, but I'm lost and it's cool anyway. Or they're thinking about some of these philosophical and scientific ideas um, or maybe even revisit it and see what elements of it speak to them. That was kind of the goal making it. Yeah, no, um, I thought it was an incredibly interesting film um, to think about. Um, as, like you were saying, a lot of multiverse films kind of just um, use the concept as an, not necessarily an excuse, but as a plot device to get to the different universes and to see crazy weird things you wouldn't see normally. But um, it's a very rare that you see the actual um, scientific theory of it explored, which I, I thought was something... Um, I've never really seen in a film before, uh, Quantum Calculus. My, my hope was that we did, we did that. That I, I think we gave people a film, hopefully, that they've never seen before. You know, I hope that we gave them a film that, uh, you know, is something genuinely new. So even if they don't like it, at the very least, it's something new that they hadn't experienced previously. So, Yeah. Uh, can you tell us more about the production process? Um, in particular, the, all the several animation sequences and how like all these different types of animation from like a uh, rotoscoping like almost like a puppetry stop motion so yeah can you tell us more about that or like what your inspiration or idea was going into this? absolutely um you know it was a tough production you know we shot in 2019 just really right before covid closed everything down you know we were shooting in october november of 2019 and the original plan for the animation was to set up you know, 20 or 30 animators with me in one location that I could oversee and work through that, that animation. Uh, and that was, that was really our, you know, our goal for creating that COVID threw that for a curve. So it ended up being a little more fractured, but um, I think there were benefits and negatives to that. I was able to throw my net wider on the different animators that I was able to use, who, who was able to, to be a part of this uh, ultimately. Uh, but the idea was, you know, to use the different animations to represent, you know, if someone was to, I was to buy the DVD, which until recently I would have joked and said, you know, there's never going to be a DVD, but I think we actually just maybe worked out a deal. So there is going to be a DVD. So maybe people will buy the DVD and take the different styles and try to cut them, uh, cut them together into their, um, into their different uh, styles just by themselves. And you could sort of see whose point of view each one was. So when we went into production, it was very important that each part of this film, and it's not random, they were decided what what parts would go together and how they would look. Now, once we had production, what animation I used, again, wasn't random, but had a little more freedom. We just knew each of those needed to be different. And, you know, all the scenes that essentially come from future Lily's point of view all had a certain look and Minnow Mountain did those and, you know, different things that we had to to put together. But I think really going into the actual shooting of the actors, I was the only one who probably really knew the answer to all that. So I had my notes and had to make sure people performed. And then when it went into post-production, it all had to come through me and work remotely when other artists did things and I had to, to keep it together. So it really was a lot of large scale notes and trying to say, OK, I need to make sure I keep each of these pieces straight, which was almost the most difficult part. But then you top of that, the animation itself is so laborious that once you kept that straight and had to make each piece, that was 
pretty tough too. So it was being able to communicate clearly remotely to someone, having them send me pieces, which usually worked pretty well. Sometimes there were still things I needed to tweak or change and how to get that all onto the screen so that I felt like it was all of a quality that I could stand behind and that it made some modicum of sense. Um, but it meant that drew out three years, really, of post-production um, having to do that, which which was a lot. That was a lot of work. <laughs> wow. Three years. You worked with a lot of uh, very notable actors on this film, from Kyla Gordon, Gary Farmer, Alex Scott, David Arquette, uh, and uh, Lily Gladstone. Can you tell us about how it was working with the cast? Oh, fantastic. I mean, I, you know, I think um, I made a career of making independent films. And a lot of the time, what you have to do is really, you have to make compromises. So things you imagine in your head, the perfect movie you think you're going to go out there and make isn't always exactly what you have the means to create. And you figure out what you're going to do anyway, and something that you're proud of. But I think this was really the first film that I've ever made where I got just so lucky to work with a cast that always exceeded expectations. So this was a case where I would shoot a scene and you don't have to remember, wait, I need to do four takes. I need to still think about doing my job because I'd watch them do one one take and it would already be better than the sort of best case scenario film I was imagining in my head that, you know, Kiowa just has this uncanny physical presence and ability to know where the camera is and sense that world all moving around him, you know? And then Lily you know, I'd say I was 10 years ahead of the rest of the gang that I think are catching up now. But, you know, first time I ever saw in a film, I thought this is one of the best actors I've ever seen. And I think the world is realizing that, you know, she just brings a magic to it. John is a relative newcomer, but he's incredible. Like, I think Bruno became sort of the most lovable character in the film. And then adding on to that, people like, you know, Gary Farmer, Alex Cox, they're, you know, those are cinematic heroes. Uh, you know, Anna Karina. Those are the reasons I became a filmmaker was seeing their work in the past. So getting to bring them in and have them participate in this was, you know, really, truly amazing. And same on the music side, you know, Nico Case, John Doe, Hal Gelb are the musicians I grew up listening to. So for me, this was a dream cast, you know, maybe not everyone agrees, but I look at this and say, like, there is no cooler cast, you know, and then a few people who I wasn't as familiar, you know, I didn't know their work necessarily as well, but brought in, you know, David Arquette is phenomenal. I mean, he's known obviously is a comedic and sort of a goofball actor that he can do, but he also carries this wonderful gravity and I think can play serious. And he, he walked that line for us. And then my longtime friend, Frank Mosley, I think was the perfect foil to be Colfax and Depew with him. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I hope to have those kinds of experiences again with a cast because it was truly, truly incredible cast that we got to bring together. Can you tell me more about writing film with musician, uh, Hal Gilb and collaborating on the score? Yeah, Hal's, Hal is a wonderful friend, one of my best friends, and also, um, I think, you know, at least for my taste, an amazing musician, you know, that I, I love his work. Uh, but he's just a creative and generous mind. We started writing this, you know, I was going to say I had one sitting on my desk. I don't. I think they're packed in a bag because I was just traveling. But all these, we'd take, we'd sit in Tucson and talk about this idea before it was fully written into a screenplay. And I would keep all these moleskin notebooks and take notes in them and write all these things down uh, so that we could, uh, you know, create this world. Uh, and after doing that for a couple of years, I finally sat down with all the notebooks and tried to turn them into a script. And, you know, Hal looked at it and said, uh, this is way, this makes way too much sense. You know, no one's going to like it. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I think it's still pretty confusing. <laughs> so we made it. I, I think we walked the line. Okay. With that. But um, he's really a, a wonderful person to create with and, and send ideas back and forth. And I, hopefully we'll get to do more of that on a couple sequels to this. 
Yeah, I saw that this was part of a potential trilogy. It is if we ever get to make them. You know, um, indie film is a tough business. And I would say for good or bad, but I'd say mostly for bad. There's an unfortunate side to a lot of indie film that um, your ability to continue to exist in indie film is largely dependent on a small a small group of gatekeepers. And if those gatekeepers don't anoint you, the films or more accurately, the filmmakers they feel like should continue to move forward, it's very hard to even get your film seen, you know. Um, that's changed a lot. When I started making independent films in the mid, you know, 2004, 2005, I think that there was actually a lot more, it was a lot more open industry where, you know, if you went to a major film festival, they were playing films that were made on tens of thousands of dollars instead of tens of millions of dollars. You know, you could still come from nowhere and come from nothing and use your credit cards and make a film that said something new. And there was a chance to present that on a platform where, the world could help you. I, I personally think a lot of indie films lost its way. They're primarily, it's these are good films, but they're primarily playing, um, you know, if you look at Sundance, they just announced, I think I did the math and 20, 25, 24 of the US narrative features are films that are coming in the door with distribution, but with major distributions, they're all A24 and Paramount and Disney. And those are great films and I'll watch them, you know, because I like those films. But if we look at what things like Sundance and South by Once Upon a Time stood for, taking filmmakers who didn't have distribution, who didn't have agents, who were trying to figure this out and giving them a platform to present work really and truly made out of the industry. That's been erased and replaced with $21 million films made by people who already have TV shows and other major films doing something on the side and calling that independent. And in my opinion, that's it's a brutal blow <laughs> being dealt to people who really try to do something different so that might just be grumpy old jeff here talking right now but i do love independent film and i devoted my life to doing this as a career because i like to see what people who aren't doing it the way everyone else is doing it people who are in anchorage people who are in texas people who are somewhere else coming up with some crazy idea and trying to present it and i do wish there was a little more uh support for that but this is a long your question was just about the sequel so my answer is that when you fall outside of that, when you don't go through these festivals labs and they don't give you the platform that's going to get you shown on Netflix, you know, and you're going to get stuck on a smaller streamer, or you're going to get stuck on pay-per-view. It's unrealistic to ever imagine you'd, you'd break even on your budget. And if you can't break even on your budget from a previous film, no one's going to spend money to make a sequel. I think this is a danger that we were knee deep in, in independent films. So you know, we're going to get a lot of what I would call the same old, same old, you know, maybe it's just someone else's taste. Maybe there's someone else out there that's really celebrating what we're getting. To me, what we're getting is $20 million films that look the same. And what we're not getting is sequels to a film like Quantum Cowboys. So I've written them. I want to make them. The cast is interested in making them. I'm just uh, less optimistic that we will ever recoup enough money that someone will help us make them, sadly. But they're really cool sequels. You could find out all about Colfax and Depew and then fall, find out what all the immortal characters in Willie Gladstone were doing. Because that's that's really basically the, the second sequel is Colfax and Depew. And you get to see how they disappeared from the 1970s and got stuck in the Wild West. And then the third one is all about Willie's character and how she founds those people that are the camera people and what they're really doing. That's the answers that I would have given in, in the next two sequels. But maybe I'll still make them if it works out. And I'd be thrilled to, you know. You never know what the future is going to give us. We'll be right back with more of Kendrick's conversation with director Jeff Marsley.
Alaska Teen Media Institute is looking for youth to join our team. As a youth producer, you can be a part of roundtables, conduct interviews, edit audio, record voiceovers, help write scripts, and much more. And all of that is paid work. And get this, while we're based in Anchorage, you don't have to be there to work with us. A lot of the work we do is done remotely. So if you're between the ages of 13 and 24, living in Alaska, and are interested in joining ATME, go to alaskateenmedia.org slash join. You can also email us at news at alaskateenmedia.org. Before we get back to Kendrick's interview with director Jeff Marsley, let's hear another clip from Quantum Cowboys. It's been a while since I've left my home. Probably never get to go back. This is supposed to be the land of opportunity, a place where you work hard, you land some land, make some money, and opportunity right in there in front of me. Well, opportunity is also the opposite of opportunity. I don't understand. All that land you work to work, where do you think it comes from? Just out here. What about the people already here? There's plenty of land for us and them, too. Yeah? Why'd them kill all us to take it? Bruno and I didn't kill anybody. We don't got no opportunity, neither. You two can't imagine what's ahead, but you need to hurry now. How are we gonna find our horses if we keep rushing through here? We ain't gonna find your horses. And how are you so short? Because bandits took them. I saw it. What? You lied to us? Didn't want to ride this road alone. <laughs> you two were going this way anyway. Bandits with your horses did go this way. I'll get you new ones. Ready to go back now. What challenges have you had getting this movie out to audiences? You know, it's it's been really tough. Um, again, I love festivals like Anchorage, festivals like Tallgrass. I love, I personally love the regional festivals the best. I think that they're really doing the best work. But that having said, there are, you know, three, maybe four U.S. festivals from which you can successfully launch a film uh, and have it get seen. And if you're not launching your film at one of those you know, three festivals, it's it's so hard that even publications like IndieWire that write the word indie in front of the word wire and call themselves an indie publication, but they won't, they haven't reviewed Quantum Cowboys. You know, I, this is really Gladstone's likely to win the, the Academy for Best Actress. And this is, though there's some question, because I think uh, Marissa might've premiered hers first, but we shot first. It's the first lead and a feature that Lily ever had. And it came out this year and you would think that would at least merit, you know, a two paragraph review on a digital website for IndieWire, talking about indie film. But they, the publications spend their time covering Timothy Chalamet hosting Saturday Night Live. And most recently, I'm grumpy about it. And though maybe that author will watch this or read this and then say, hey, what's going on? But, you know, even when Lily mentions, hey, I'm in three indie films, they literally say, Lily's glad to talk about the three indie films. Here's two of them and mention the other two and not mine. So, when you don't have some of those major festivals pushing you, um, it's very hard to get the media environment to even your film exists, uh, much less sing its praises. And if you can't get that kind of validation, then you you disappear into the back 
side of distribution. We've been lucky. Some some very cool indie theaters have played the film and we've had some great turnouts for those. Yeah, we're certainly not being talked about in best of lists by any of the publications that would drive our our streamers. And we're certainly not, you know, getting nominated for any of these end of, you know, we're in awards season now. And my film, arguably, I'd say we ought to be next to Barbie for best original songs. You know, we have two Grammy nominated performers singing original songs that we wrote for the movie that I think are really pretty good, but the world won't know those exist. So the real difficulty is there's gatekeepers that say which films should get some attention. And that's not really driven by audiences or even whether or not your film speaks to an audience. It's driven by a small group of people who run organizations and they're running the way they see fit, but the way they see fit doesn't doesn't really allow a lot of outside voice into it. And we fall in that outside voice. And then if you go and do something like Quantum Cowboys and make something that's, you know, for good or bad, challenging, that makes it even harder. Without naming names, these people, you know, we literally got rejections from some of those festivals saying, this is the most original thing I've seen in years. You'll do great somewhere else. We got another one that said, this film is really great, but it takes to the very end of the film for someone to really understand it. Our audience won't watch that. You know, I, I think when you get those kind of responses, to me, what they're saying is we don't want different. We don't want challenging. We don't want a film that you might need to watch three or four times to really understand and love. I just watched Walker, Alex Cox's film, for the seventh time at the uh, Oak Cliff Film Fest, which is a great film festival as well. I realized that I've always liked Walker, and I've always, but it's never been my favorite of Alex's films until maybe now. Having watched it a seventh time, I was like, hey, I think I finally get this film, and I might think this film is genius. You know, and I, I'm now in a new phase with it, and I feel that way about a lot of music. I do think we need more organizations championing films that you might watch the first time and go, I'm not sure I even got that, but you revisit it. And I think if there's a place for that, that should be the world of festivals. That should be the world of organizations that are created to say, hey, are you someone who might want more than just an entertainment in your two hours? Maybe try biting this off. So again, circular logic, but coming back to like my experiences with a place like Anchorage, you know, Anchorage, I, I think they gave us the new genre award for Quantum Cowboys. They, they literally have an award the Anchorage Film Festival is saying, here's a film that's going to push boundaries and be something different that you haven't seen. So I I applaud them and I applaud all the festivals that are trying to do a little bit more of that of saying, look, let's use our position to really shine a light on some people doing something new and different and hope more of it happens. But that's really been the biggest challenge because if you don't, in the old days, in the, you know, in the 90s and 2000, if you were a smaller film that was strange, you at least would put out a DVD and Video stores across the country would buy that DVD and rent them out. You had a chance to find your cult cult followings. You know, the people that wanted something different would go to the video store on Saturday night and pick up a weird box and say, I've never seen anything like that and rent it. But now with streaming, if your film isn't immediately popular, it actually just becomes unavailable. There's a vast number of amazing films which are just literally unavailable because a streamer put them on for two months and then they disappear into the ether. And that's sad for the next generation of weirdo kids watching weird films those are my people i'm hoping they still get to do it that's why i'm all the i'm all in support of physical media <laughs> yeah i i think you're right i mean i think that's a cool thing you know younger people like yourself um i think have had a resurgence and a love of physical media you know buying records buying dvds buying blu-rays again and i i'm with you i, I applaud your interest in those and i think I think, you know, some of them go, oh, they're just being pretentious and, you know, whatever, retro and trying to buck the trends. I, I disagree. I, I think actually every time you buy physical media, I would argue that you are part of a force for preserving these films that are otherwise going to disappear. Save the art. So, yeah, keep keep buying them. <laughs> you know, 
uh, I, I really feel like that's that is an important aspect to film to there being a healthy indie film market. So thank you. <laughs> um, I was going to ask you, um, just because I saw the Richard Linklater Slacker poster in the back. Yeah. Um, <laughs> who are some of your artistic influences for uh, film, music, whatever? Yeah, you know, I mean, a lot of them are actually in this film. So I, I would say that, you know, um, people ask favorite films. I'm like, oh, I don't know. My favorite films change every week. But when I think about films that really influenced what I do, um, you know, certainly. And I think if you watch Quantum Cowboys, you can see some of these parallels. You know, I've always loved David Byrne's True Stories is a movie that that mixes music and narrative and is ostensibly about Texas, but is really about David Byrne. I think I find a lot of parallels into what I try and do with that film, but certainly Linklater, you know, when I was a teenager and he made Slacker, I went to the Inwood theater in Dallas and I watched Slacker and it, uh, you know, it really changed. I was like, Whoa, you could make a film like this and people are just talking and it's philosophy and they wander around. It was, it was amazing. Um, so this, this was this film or posters for uh, Slacker 2011 um in 2011 23 i think of us it might be 25 might be 22 around 20 something of us filmmakers in austin remade slacker we each did a scene uh to raise money for the texas filmmakers production fund uh that the austin film society put on and i, lo I love it i don't know how available this film really is but i think if you're a fan of the original slacker it's really fun to see it kind of reimagined in you know 2011 which was 20 years after the original had come out but link letters certainly uh, you know, an influence. And, um, you know, he was making Waking Life the same time I was uh, uh, making my thesis animation and and then Mars about the same time he was doing um, uh, Scanner Darkly. So we even did a little some similar stuff in the animation universe um, at that time. Another poster back here, Don Hertzfeld, who's worked on a couple of films in the, but as an animator, is also inspiring the way he uses animation and uh uh and styles but i was also inspired on quantum cowboys you know visually things like the lord of the rings the old animated ones that rankin bass did the hobbit and lord of the rings you know we really aimed for some looks that were similar to that and that mix of rotoscoping and 2d that we definitely used um in quantum cowboys and then you know things like the stop motion uh mystery me media out of uh, san francisco helped us do all the scenes with the cat and memory um you know, stop motion stuff. So I've always, you know, Jan Svantmeyer, all that crazy um, stop motion where you use real physical things um, really helped inspire uh, some of those looks. So all that stuff really went in there. Um, and then, you know, born in the 70s. So some amount of, you know, the Clint Eastwood Westerns and Star Wars, I think can't help but always, you know, have flavored what I thought movies were. So I think I drove from lots of different top and bottom. And then even, just having people talk, you know, uh, Hal Hartley's films and Jim Jarmusch's films um, and, um, you know, the way people uh, communicate with each other. I think uh, I tr I've tried to emulate or let people talk in ways that feel like they're really talking, but also say things that they might not normally say in the world, you know, elevate the language in ways. Uh, Marjane Satrapi, who did um, uh, Persepolis, uh, you know, the way that that story couldn't have been told if it wasn't animated, definitely that influenced, you know, things I was doing. So I think drawing from a lot of, a lot of different places in a mix of live action and animation, which resulted in a film that's a mix of live action and animation. Well, uh, I saw your film uh, that got into Sundance, The Phantom 52. Can you tell us more about that? 
Yeah. And there, there you go. As I just, we're thinking about favorite films, two more favorite films. The Phantom made me think of it, but uh, uh, The Thing, uh, John Carpenter's film, and Alien, uh, which are in some ways similar films, but I love both those. But Alien, of course, stars Tom Skerritt. And, um, you know, getting to make The Phantom 52, getting to work with Tom Skerritt was another dream come true, another case where, much like with Quantum Cowboys, I got to work with one of my cinematic heroes, and it was as good as I would have hoped. It was amazing. Um, so I was thankful he was able to to bring his voice to that. But yeah, I, I just spent so much time driving around and going places in my life. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm going to say millions of miles I've driven. It might be an exaggeration, but then again, it might actually not be an exaggeration. I don't know. I mean, I've been to, I've driven through 30 plus states this year alone. Um, you know, drive around a lot of, I mean, I'm here today, but the last 48 hours I drove a thousand miles yesterday and the day before so i'm often on these highways at night you know driving in a car and that inspired a lot of that film when i was in high school middle school whatever i was then 1989 middle school yeah. there was a, a story came out about a whale that they were trying to find it's a real whale that seems to speak in a frequency that other whales can't actually hear so no other whales ever responded to it and i think is built up a little lore around it because they've still been recording this whale for the last 20 something years, but not ever managed to catch it on film or video. Um, but uh, it gets, you know, labeled the loneliest whale or whatever. But I, I've always been fascinated with that whale since it first was reported in 89. And I got me thinking about when you drive around, you know, we have cell phones or CB. We have these ways, though, that people communicate with each other, even though they're really far away and drifting on these highways. And I wrote that story to kind of do the opposite of I think what people usually do we find ways to take that lonely whale and we try to think about that whale's experience as if we were a part if that whale is a person so we anthropomorphize them and I really wanted to try to whale promorphize people and instead try to think about what the people experience is driving on cars if we looked at it from a whale's point of view and so I wrote that script which kind of blends the character whether he's just a lonely trucker or maybe he is actually a ghost like the you know the title came from like the phantom 309 idea of this phantom trucker out there who died in an accident and the ghost haunts the highways or maybe the whole story is really just about the whale and i wanted to kind of mix those three concepts together yeah no it was incredibly interesting and i noticed um some parallels in your filmmaking style um I just love the animation you got in your films. What got you into animation? Um, stumbled into it. You know, I was I in high school. I painted, drew, and I thought about going to art school. I've always enjoyed that. Um, you know, uh, probably gotten worse at it without practice, but I've enjoyed drawing and painting and doing those things. Um, but uh, when I was in grad school, I took my one and only animation class I ever took and learned a really rudimentary program called. Um, uh, director which was like a precursor of flash um that existed and that was about all i'd ever learned and i took sharpie paper sharpies and typing paper and i animated uh, a song that a friend had sent me uh called monkey versus robot and didn't know what i was doing you know couldn't see any playback timed things by using my watch and drawing the approximate frames i thought scanned them in at 72 dpi which was obviously not a good resolution, but I didn't know I didn't know what I was doing. I put it all together and uh, made this film over the course of a week, and it somehow really caught on. And uh, I think the mix of how fun it was to make that and having something I made 
suddenly play, you know, it got like a million, two million views on YouTube. And I was like, suddenly this thing I made was a hit. That's always a little exciting as a creator. So I dove further into animation and basically became a self-taught animator from there um, and kind of never looked back. I love doing it. And, you know, I made Mars in 20, from 2007 to 2010. And then I made Quantum Cowboys, you know, from 2019 to 2022. Um, so about every 10 years, I bite off a giant animated film. And it's so much work that I remind myself why I haven't done it in a while. And then, you know, I don't make an animated film for another 10 years. But but I keep coming back to it because I do love it. Yeah, no, and I, uh, you do have a very distinct style. Um, and it does take me back to things like the old Lord of the Rings Um and even a lot of like uh, older Russian animation. I'm glad you see those parallels because that that's that's certainly the world of, you know, I, I I'm much more excited about that stuff than I am. I look, I'm a Star Wars fan, but even like I watch like the Clone Wars or things, or I watch Pixar. Um, I, I don't really like really smooth animation. I realize I like animation that has its bumps and bruises and its quirks, and you still feel the person who drew it. So I like those old Russian animators. I like those old '70s Americans. I, that, yeah. So I'm glad you see those parallels because that's that's the stuff that warms my heart when I see it. So that's what I try to make at least. So. Yeah. No. I, I in particular. Yeah. The, a lot of the older Russian stuff. Um, how it would have a lot of those bumps and bruises, and it would never be like it. It, it, it was made by its imperfections. Yeah. Um, and like, it, I, I don't know, that's some of the most creative stuff I've seen in my life. Um, I wanted to ask you, what's next for you? Uh, what, what would you say is, uh, do you have any big projects you're working on? Or can you tell us about uh, what's next? Yeah, so I'm trying a couple things. So one thing I'm doing, I'm, I've been producing a little bit for another filmmaker, Skinner Myers, and we're finishing up a feature that we shot on 35 millimeter black and white film here in Colorado. Extremely low budget, very personal film to him. And uh, I'm really proud of it, particularly some of the stuff we did. We hiked all that old film equipment up to about 13,000 feet in the snow and, you know, shot those final scenes and often because our budget was so small. But that's hopefully premiering sometime this summer. We're, we're just now working on sound mix and a little bit of uh, cleaning up some shots and some effects I'm doing with him. But it's been fun to produce with him on that. And we're I'm looking at producing another feature uh, coming up for him soon. Um, but I'm also uh, trying to get the financing together for a new feature that I'm that I co-wrote with a guy Raphael, um, and it's a it's a werewolf western um, that actually kind of came about when we were showing Quantum Cowboys in Spain at the Almeria Western Film Festival, uh, which takes place in the town where they shot the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, Fistful of Dollars, and a lot of those spaghetti westerns. And those sets are still there, and uh, kind of wrote this as a western set at the end of the civil war uh just south of the texas border in mexico but hopefully designed to be shot in these old spaghetti western sets so it's all live action um, i'd be co-directing with kiowa gordon who is in quantum cowboys and i think wants to get some experience on the other side of the camera um and so he and i would work together and hopefully make this film next year that's that's maybe the next thing on the agenda if it if it comes true so no, I'm definitely excited to see what you have uh, going on next. Just because uh, I would say I'm a fan of your work. I liked everything I've seen so far. I uh, bought a copy of uh, Quantum Cowboys. And honestly, ever since I've watched it, I've been feeling the need to rewatch it. Excellent. I keep thinking about it. Thanks. Uh, anything you'd like to say to any young um, independent filmmakers starting up out here? Yeah, I mean, I, twofold, as I'd say, you know, I'm, I'm a little pessimistic in the fact that I think that the 
the market, the way that you can financially keep making these is in really bad shape. And that's a bummer. But I'd still tell people not to not do it. I'd tell people to keep working at it. You know, we need, we do need interesting storytellers. We need new voices from everywhere coming out and saying new and different things. And, you know, one thing I'd especially say, and I do say to students who take my classes, you know, y'all, y'all are the future of filmmaking. And as the future of filmmaking, um, if whatever's happening now is not making a place for you, uh, you're the ones with a 50-year career still ahead of you to change that and to make make the indie film market a market that does give you the chance to say these things. So I guess what I would tell people is uh, it's going to be rough. So, you know, be prepared for some disappointments and some some moments where you're like, why am I doing this? But also be aware that uh, y'all have a lot of power just being the next the next generation coming coming up uh, to to sh try and shape it into something that, you know, you would want it to be, because I, I think it just as quickly as I think things in any film have kind of gotten worse in recent years. Um, I think there's room for it to get better again. I think there's room for it to um, become much more accessible to people outside of, of, of very small groups to, to, to have their work seen in the major venues again. And I'm, I'm excited to see what people do. So I just tell all the indie, all indie or even non-indie studio films are cool too. TV shows are cool. Series are cool. That's a really, you know, I'm excited about the world of episodic. I think there's a lot you can do there. And I would tell up and coming people to not totally avoid that. But, you know, regardless of all those things, I'd say don't, don't totally despair and run to TikTok. You know, there's still room to do something exciting in, you know, this dinosaur media of film and TV. So I hope they keep doing it. All right. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, it's been a wonderful conversation. Yeah, thanks. I, thanks, for, thanks for bearing with me with all my schedule changes. You know, I'm always running around doing something, but, uh, but really happy to talk to you and really glad to be included. That was At Me producer Kendrick Whiteman speaking with Jeff Marslett. His film Quantum Cowboys is now available on video on demand. You've been listening to Film Club, a production of Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music was composed by Kendrick Whiteman. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Denina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to supporters of our podcast. The views expressed in this program do not necessarily represent the views of our sponsors. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support youth voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. It's a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like at me. Just go to patreon.com slash Alaska Teen Media. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review for our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and X, formerly known as Twitter, at Alaska Teen Media. Follow us for all sorts of updates. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Isaiah Hernandez. Thank you for listening.